And we are in our first Sunday of Lent. I'm really excited. Um, and our scripture passage today is from the lectionary. Um, and it's in Matthew 4, uh, 1 through 11. And I'm going to be reading from the Common English Bible Version. Um, and I've entitled this sermon, The Wilderness. Then Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied, again, it's written, don't test the Lord your God. When the devil brought him to a very, then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, Go away, Satan, because it's written, You will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil left him and angels came and took care of him. This is the word of the Lord. So in the midst of all of this these alluring temptations, these distractions, Jesus maintains his integrity. And it's interesting the timing of this, right? Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. Um, he's right on the cusp of beginning his public ministry. And John the Baptist has been preaching and having followers come and baptizing people saying, I'm preparing the way for someone who is much greater than me. Much greater than me is coming. The Messiah who will baptize you by fire. Even though I'm baptizing you by water, there's someone coming who's coming who's going to baptize you by fire. And John the Baptist, Jesus comes. And actually, John the Baptist has the privilege of baptizing Jesus. And he's like, I shouldn't do this. I'm not even worthy enough to tie your shoes. But Jesus is like, this has to happen. Um, and then we get this epic scene in Luke, of uh, the heavens opening and uh, the spirit of the Lord like a dove descending upon Jesus saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And it's just shining like, oh, and maybe there are choirs going, la, 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 hallelujah. And Jesus, right, is like glorified as he comes out of the waters of baptism. But then it says immediately, immediately, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus in the wilderness. Drives Jesus in the wilderness to, be, to fast for 40 days. And this is desert, mind you, around Jerusalem. Rocky, desert, hot, lack of water, not eating for 40 days. So definitely suffering if you are like me and like watching some of those survival shows, right? Man vs. Wild or things like that. It's like really, really hard. Really hard stuff. Um, 
I don't know how many of you have fasted for any period of time. Yeah, 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 right? It's not the easiest of spiritual disciplines. I've fasted a couple times, like intentionally because of spiritual reasons, and uh, spiritual fasting, and I usually, like, I think I broke it off and ate something at the end, and like, ah, felt so bad, my willpower. But I was also a wrestler in high school, so I fasted for winning sake, and that was much easier. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. Um, but if you've ever, you know, been hangry, even like missed a meal for the day, haven't eaten even for one meal, and felt the hunger pangs, it's not an enjoyable feeling. And for me, I get grumpy. I get, you know, quite perturbed, and um, it's not a happy feeling. Or you can get shaky. Um, if you're like me, I have type 2 diabetes, and so I have insulin going through, and then, you know, if I haven't eaten enough, I get shaky and kind of nauseous, and it's not a good sign. I have to get something in me. And so just experiencing a little bit of hunger and then extending that out to 40 days, it's just inconceivable to me. It's like, oh my gosh. And the purpose of spiritual disciplines, like fasting, for instance, the reason why people fast is that it's something that we need, right? A necessity, and yet we're setting that aside in order to be more vulnerable and open and tender to God's voice and God's spirit in our lives. Amen? Does that make sense? Because sometimes we eat because we have to, but... Uh, for like a lot of us, we eat because we have to, but we also eat because we want to, amen, right? I eat, there's a have to, but then, you know, as my belly shows, there's a want to, right? There's a have to and a want to, and I eat for taste, I eat for pleasure, I eat, uh, I emotionally eat, I eat because I'm anxious, worried, I eat because I'm sad, I eat, I eat, I eat, right? And it's one way that I turn to something to give me comfort. Or it's one way I turn to something to make me feel full. And so in fasting, we're letting go of something that we need or even something that we want in order to make room to focus on God's word, God's love, God's presence in our life. Do you get me, church? That's fasting. Any kind of fasting. It's not just food. You can be fasting from, as in Lent, a lot of times in Lent, people give up things. And depending on how you view Lent, it's 40 days, right? And six Sundays. So six, the Sundays are supposed to be Sabbath days from your Lent fast. So actually, you know, one, uh, one year I gave up rice for Lent. But on Sundays, right, we'd go out to eat, you know, you're going to H-Bar, you're going to different restaurants, and I'm like, chowing down on rice, and Janice is like, you gave up rice for Lent. I'm like, no, Sunday's a Sabbath, <laughs> right? It's not 40 days, it's 46 days, six Sundays. So technically, it's my cheat day, right? But the problem was, you know, I made up for one week of missing rice and one Sunday, right? Every Sunday. Ah, can I have an extra bowl of rice, please? Rice. Uh, fasting. So uh, you can fast from t 
television, you can fast from um, social media, you can fast from your computer, you can fast from different things. And a lot of people choose uh, to take up some sort of fast during Lent in order to let go of maybe a distraction as we discussed last, last week or two weeks ago. Um, let go of things that may distract us from completely focusing on Jesus. So Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the desert, we remember it during Lent. And it's usually this passage in the lectionary, either the Luke passage or the Mark passage is used in the first Sunday of Lent um, because of obvious reasons, right? 40 days um, in the desert um, and 40 days of Lent. Many Christians fast, pray, and give alms to the poor. Um, in the Bible, fasting in the Bible, there are examples like Elijah and, Mo and Moses in the Old Testament. They fasted as well for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus' fast in the desert is also tied to the Exodus, right? The people of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt, enslavement, and following God to the promised land. So Jesus fasted in the desert is tied to Exodus. And when the, the people of Israel, right, they wandered in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And Jesus himself makes this connection to the Exodus with his, script, his scripture quotes responding to each temptation of Satan. So if you look at the structure of Satan's temptation, there's three main temptations. And to each one, he quotes, Jesus quotes uh, scripture from Deuteronomy, which is about uh, the people's exodus, that time journeying uh, for 40 days, uh, 40 years. And so in Lent, we kind of reenact that drama um, of the 40 days or the 40 years of wandering in the desert and kind of working out our faith, working out our hearts, working out things on our journey um, following God. And so during Lent, we're on the journey to the cross. And the question is, will we maintain spiritual fidelity? Just as Jesus maintains his integrity in the face of temptation, can we journey in the wilderness and maintain spiritual fidelity? Are you with me, church? So let's break it down. Let's look at, next slide, uh, the three-phased attack in the desert. So Jesus is driven to the desert by the Holy Spirit. That in itself is like, what? God drove Jesus into suffering, right? The Holy Spirit drives us into hard places sometimes, right? And it's after a time of like, celebration or a time of glory when Jesus has been baptized, right? And you, you'd expect like, oh, Jesus is here. He's come onto the stage. But instead, he's driven to the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days in the heat. And there's definitely a physical challenge in this fast, a physical challenge being in the heat of the desert. What does it feel like to fast? How do we feel when we are hungry, 
What else can hunger represent in our lives? It's a physical challenge for sure, but there's also a spiritual challenge or a spiritual metaphor, an emotional challenge to hunger. So what else can, can hunger represent in our lives? We talk about putting bread on the table, right? I need to work so I can put bread on the table. So food represents providing for the family, having the necessities of housing, shelter, food, money, clothes, job, transportation. We also talk about comfort food, right? There is an amount of comfort, warmth, well-being attached to food. We want to be comfortable. Being in the desert without food for 40 days is not comfortable, nor is it safe. None of us signed up for, you know, Man versus Wild or one of those survival shows, right? We're not about it. We like watching it, but not actually, right, from the comfort of our home. In the story of manna, right, the exodus, the, the people um, have a promise. They've come out of Egypt and they have a promise in God. They're led by a fire at night and a cloud in the daytime. Right? They've been delivered and provided for over and over again by God. And yet, when that journey gets a little bit hot and the cupboards run a little bare, they get that soul hanger. Right? When our cupboards are bare, we get that soul hanger. I mean, hanger. Like hungry, angry. Hanger. Soul hanger gives us amnesia. Right? All of a sudden, we forget that God is good. Amen. And we're like, God is good all the time. Uh, maybe. Amen. We forget all the ways you provided and delivered when we were in a hot mess and on our knees in prayer. How many times have we been in crisis situations and been like, God, deliver me. If you just do this for me, I will follow you all the days of my life. I'll give my first Let's give them to you, dedicate them to you forever. Just give me this job, right? Give me this thing. We've been on our knees before. But then it happens again and we forget. So the journey of fasting, the journey in the wilderness is an opportunity for us to detox. And remember who is true life. In, who is true life? We don't live on bread alone, but we survive on the God of the universe, and that's what's happening here. Satan is say, says to Jesus, if you're truly the Son of God, if you're truly Jesus, then say to the, why are you out here suffering? Say to these stones right here, he picks the most opportune moment, the most vulnerable time in Jesus's kind of journey there and says, take these stones around you. You have the power to turn them into bread. Just do it. Just do it. And what does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, 8, which is, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word. That comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.3 And the story of manna in the desert 
comes from Exodus 16, 1 through 36. And we all know the story if you grew up in Sunday school uh, and read the Bible. The people were hungry and they were grumbling and complaining to Moses. They've come this far into the desert only to be hungry, to die, to die hungry. And what does God do? He provides manna. Basically, in the morning, like dew, there's bread on the grass and people collect it. And God provides. But even in that provision, there's kind of a there's kind of a, a pill, right? A, a poison pill put in there, right? To ensure daily trust that God is the provider of daily bread. Because when people, he says, don't collect it. Just eat, eat what, what's there for the day. Don't try to store it up. They try to store it up, what happens? Right? It rots. And so God is demonstrating or sh showing them that you don't live on just bread alone. You live on me, my word. You live on trusting me. I will provide your daily bread day by day. Do you trust me? People don't live on bread alone. All right. So Satan's like, okay, you got, you got me. You got me on that part. The second one, temple diving. Let's go to the top of this temple, the temple in Jerusalem, to the highest point. We're going to do some skydiving or stunt diving, right? The devil says, prove it. Prove it then. If you're the precious son of God, his only begotten son, if you are, God will save you. So just throw your, he's not going to let you, he's not going to let you die. Throw yourself off of this, this high place, off of this point, because it says, and Satan can quote scripture, amen? Yeah. Satan quotes scriptures and says, he won't let your foot touch a single rock before his angels come and lift you up and deliver you. And Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy, which points back to the exodus of the people. Right? What does he say? Do not, De Deuteronomy 6.16 if you turn to that, it says, do not put your Lord God to the test. That's where Jesus stops. But it goes on to say in 6.16, as you did at Massa. What happened at Massa? What happened at Massa? Well, what happened at Massa, which means testing, um, and it has a second name, which is Meribah, which means quarreling is that once again the people are grumbling against Moses because this time they're thirsty. This is right after, this is the next chapter after manna. They're thirsty and they're grumbling and complaining again and they said they'd rather die, you know. They shouldn't have come out here. They'd rather be in Egypt again. Why did you bring us out here only to die of thirst? And thirst mind you, is way more critical and vital than hunger, right? You can live off without food for, what, 40 days or a little more, without water, three days, right? I, uh, I don't know if you've seen the stories um, on the news of um, the after effects of the earthquake in Syria and Turkey, but the rescue crews 
you know, having to be quiet and listen for the sounds of people. And they showed these amazing kind of rescues of it being like a five days to a week later. And they heard like the cries of, you know, a baby and they pulled a, a baby out of the rubble and uh, another family and it's like, how did they survive? But it's just this, the, you hear the people like praising God, you know, as these people are being rescued. And it's beautiful and, um, and amazing. But thirst is such way more time sensitive, right? To, to be thirsty and not have water. And you can get really thirsty and really testy. And in crisis mode, in thirsty mode, we do get testy. Um, but not just testy like we're grumpy, but testy in terms of we will start to do anything, say anything to get what we need, right? Have you ever been really thirsty and someone's just got this, for me it's like Coke, <laughs> got this like icy big gulp and like, the condensation's just dripping down and you've got cotton mouth because you're so thirsty and you're looking at, and they're drinking and you're almost like your mouth is doing what they're doing, right? You're like, can I have that, right? We want it, I need it. We become conniving and manipulative when we need and thirst and hunger and it's, we're not satisfied. Testing God simply means that we are trying to manipulate or control God. How many times have you been, uh, have you prayed this prayer? God, if you do this one thing, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll do the right thing. Or even with more anger and, and frustration, God, if you don't do this one thing, I'll be really mad at you and hate you forever. Right? Even though God is like, we're appealing to God, like it doesn't make sense rationally, but emotionally we're like, I'll be mad at you forever if you don't do it. I think this is what it means to test the Lord your God. Right? Satan is saying, just randomly, like be reckless with your life because God loves you so much. He said he'll protect you. He said he'll, he'll save you. Don't use your privilege or favorite position in God's eyes as leverage to make him do what you want. Our God is bigger and we are smaller. It's not the other way around. We are itsy bitsy and we attempt to shove eternal omnipotent God into our itty bitty boxes. Do that, and then you are real, right? Do this, and then you really love me. It's like Gideon. Hey, make this fleece dry and the ground water around it wet, then I will trust you. God does it. Okay, now make this fleece wet and the ground around it dry, then I'll trust you. God does it. Okay, right? And that's, you know, in that situation, God was patient, right? And allowed it to happen. But we do that all the time. We test God, we test God, we test that. If you do this, do this, do this, do this, 
Then I will know that you are real. Then I will know that you really love me. Then I know that you care about me and that you're powerful enough. But the fact is, and the truth is, that God is real already. And God really loves you already. God is already all-powerful and all-good and can do anything. He doesn't need to jump through your hoops to show you that he is the God of the universe. Amen? And, you know, sometimes... Yeah. You know, over the pandemic, when things were a little desperate, sometimes things got a little crazy, right? And sometimes Christians who represent Jesus got a little crazy. You know, I heard things like, I don't need to wear a mask, right? Because what? God will protect me. God will save me. I don't need vaccines because if it's God's will, he'll save me, right? The Holy Spirit will save me. God will protect me. If you really believed in Jesus, you wouldn't need these things. You wouldn't need the hospital. You wouldn't need medicine. You wouldn't need, you can gather together as a church. We, we, can't, we don't have to stop meeting because God will protect us. And in some ways, it's like, oh, I admire it. It sounds like, oh, that's pretty hardcore faith, right? That's hardcore. You know, God will protect you in everything. So jump off, of, jump off of this temple. Why don't you? Right? Go in front of that car. Because God is, gonna, is strong enough. And if he wants to save you, he's going to save you. But it also sounds a lot like putting God to the test. Hey, I'll just jump off this cliff. Right? And if it's God's will, he'll save me. That's not faith, it's stupidity. So Exodus 17 and uh, Numbers 9, uh, 33 are the places in the Exodus. There's two stories where uh, God uses Moses to deliver water from rock. There's actually two incidents. So Exodus 17 and Numbers 33, and they're, they're, they're a little different. In Exodus 17, the people are complaining, we're thirsty, we're thirsty, we've come here just to die. Moses is prostrate before God. What do I do? What do I do? They're going to kill me. And God says, take this rod and go over to that rock over there and give it a good tap. And he does it and water gushes out from the rock. And the people who are grumbling are like, yes, water. And it's all good. Once again, God delivers in the midst of grumbling. In Numbers 33... Right? The same thing happens in the same place. And they're grumbling to Moses and Aaron. Now, Aaron's kind of being, you know, he's the associate pastor, right? He's being raised up as the associate. And Moses and Aaron, God tells Moses and Aaron, go to the rock and the people will follow you. And instead of striking, you know, take the staff, he says, take the staff and speak to the rock, command it, and water will come out of it. And so Moses does their thing, they're coming to the rock, and he doesn't do exactly what God says, right? He doesn't just say, speak a command to the rock, he actually taps it just like he did before. 
but not just taps it, he taps it twice, right? I'll just add a little flair, like tap, tap, like the double tap instead of, you know, double click and not instead of just right click. I need to double click on that. And water does rush out, but that incident leads to God saying, you have been, you have not been faithful. You and Aaron will not go into the promised land. You'll die out here. It's like, what? Like, God, what the heck? But it's interesting. You know, I was kind of thinking, what is, you know, how do we relate to this? What does this mean? And I, I think what I kind of glean from it is, it could be an example, like a modern day example is of trusting old traditions and practices over what God is saying now. What is God saying to a people now? What is the Holy Spirit leading us to say in the desert? As we've come to this place, it may feel similar. We're thirsty. The people need something. Oh, last time that happened, I took the stick and went like that. Last time that happened, I did a, I had a retreat, right? And we brought a big speaker in, you know, big time speaker. And lots of people came to the faith, right? And were baptized and it was a revival. Amen. Right? And in fact, we're like, We'll throw in a big band, so not just one tap of the staff, right? We'll do the double tap, bum bum, right? We do that, how do we do that in the church or in our faith communities? Like, how did it work before? What were the best practices back then? What did we do? And we hold on to the old traditions. What gave us the, what gives us confidence right now, instead of, what is God saying to our community right now? Amen? Amen. What is the fresh word from the Spirit? And it is, can be different. And it may be different. And it's probably going to be different. And in this case, it was different. God said, speak to the rock. I never told you to tap, tap and do your staff thing. Right? As, as good as I may feel, Moses. Right? It's not about the tap, tap. It's about my word and trusting in me. So when we're in the desert and it's a crisis situation and the people are grumbling and you're thirsty and hungry and you're like, chaos, what do I do right now? I don't know how to lead in this place. Our temptation to, can be to hold on to the things that give us confidence, whatever that may be in your life, right? This I know. I'm used to this. That, trusting you and listening for your voice and then following it, ow. Oh, I don't know, what's the cost-benefit analysis, right? What's it, what, you know, what percentage, at what rate, what's the success rate, you know, if I do that? Listen for God's voice, so do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa, right? Don't try to make God fit into your box of how he should do things and the ways he should do things, right? Or the ways we understand him to have done things in the past, right? Let God lead you. Let God lead you. Are you with me, church? Yes. Third phase. 
all the kingdoms will be yours. Satan t takes him from the height of the temple and then goes to a higher mountain, right? And by the way, uh, in the Luke version, the temple and the mountain are switched in order. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, probably because, you know, Matthew is speaking to a, more of the temple, Jewish temple crowd, so he put that first. Um, but anyways, they go to a mountain, and he says, see all the kingdoms of the world. You can see from here. I don't know what mountain you would be able to see all the kingdoms of the world, but maybe it's figurative. But anyways, look at the, There's the Roman Empire. There's whatever empire out there. If you will bow down and worship me, this will be yours. This will be yours. This is about idolatry, right? It's about putting other things before God and worshiping those. Worshiping Satan in this, in this instance. Um, and he will give you power and glory. Um, so it's about idolatry, but more specifically Satan, I think, is attempting to take Jesus' mission to usher in the kingdom of God to bring about the redemption and salvation of Israel for God's glory to take them off that mission, right? Here's a shortcut, right? You're, you're on a mission to give God glory and gain this, like, the kingdom of God. Hey, just bow to me and you'll get it right now. So the question is, will Jesus take the route to power and glory via the empire? The way that Rome took glory and power, right? Took kingdoms, took people via conquest and oppression, fear and violence, or will Jesus do it through nonviolence, love, and sacrifice, ultimately to the cross? So Jesus says no, yes, and he maintains his integrity. He won't bow down to another Lord and follow another way. He will only serve God and live out his destiny as the humble king, the humble, canonic Messiah of the world. Kenosis is just, you know, Philippians 2. He became nothing. He laid down. He gave his life, right, and humbled himself. It's self-emptying. What about us? What does that mean for us in our journey to the cross? Power, prestige, status, and glory are definitely alluring things that will cause us to kiss the ring of the devil and sell our souls. But these are not the only aspects of idolatry. None of us really carve totems or wooden gods and worship them, right? I hope not. But an idol is anything we trust in more, lean into more, believe in more than trusting in God. Especially when we are in the desert, journeying in rough terrain, hungry and thirsty, on tilt, for those of you who like to play poker. Perhaps experiencing the silence of God, or God has not felt present in your life. or we haven't experienced deeply the love of God for a long, long time. And we give our bodies, our minds, our time, our desire, our identity, 
over to something else, to someone else. We fear that rather, we fear that being alone, being without that, um, rather than serving the only true God. Are you with me, church? And, I, and I'm, you know, I was trying to think of practical examples to like bring this home and, you know, self-testimony and, you know, you run the risk of being kind of like self-absorbed, like, here's a story about what I do. But, you know, when I think about parenting, parents, it's not wrong to want good things or flourishing for our children, right? That's a good thing. You want your kids to thrive. You want your kids to be safe. You don't want your kids to succumb to bad influences. You don't want them, you know, to go down the wrong path. But here's when it's serving something else, right? When you're serving something else rather than God. When we want them to become the image of something we've created in our minds rather than stewards of what God has created them to be. Are you with me? Yes. Right? Parents, we're stewards. Children are a gift from God that God has given us the responsibility to steward. But sometimes we get in the way, right? And I'm going to tell a funny example, but there's much, a much deeper meaning, right? So, you know, when I was in high school, I played football, right? Because I was 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five. I grew up small. Everyone's like, you small, you small, you small. Okay, I'm small, but I'm tough, right? And nothing is going to stop me. I'll run you down. I'll hit you as hard as a big person, right? So everything I did was like, grr, 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 you know? I'll play football, and I'll tackle hard. I'll wrestle, and I'll wrestle. I'll beat you up, and I'll run track, and I'll do the pole vault, you know? Because that's crazy. And... So, as I've been a parent and having kids in sports, I'm like, Isaiah, play football. And he's in high school now. Oh, you should play football. He's like, no, it's dangerous. Do you know all the st statistics that say a head, head trauma, this and that? And I'm small. And I'm like, you're not small, you're tough. Like, he doesn't, ha he doesn't care, right? And Cammy, I turned to Cammy, you gotta be tough, right? And, and she's like, I like being the smallest in my class because I'm cute. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, come on. Where's that fire? And I turn to Janice. They must take after you because where's that fire? Where's that like chip on the shoulder, right? Why doesn't Isaiah have small man's disease like me? <laughs> come on. <laughs> uh, because they're more well-adjusted. <laughs> Uh, but I catch myself wanting things so much for my children, but it's based off of the image of me, right? In the Imago Dave, instead of the Imago Dave, right? Like trying to make the children after you, my own image. And it's not even my own image. I have like a, a faulty, lofty sense of what I did accomplish in sports in high school, right? It's what I aspired to be, or like, they must be this even greater thing. But the reality is, I, Janice and I are stewards of our children, right? 
if, you know, maybe Cammy, she probably doesn't want to play soccer. She wants to dance and do art. And that's how God's made her. And that's when things become an idol in parenting, when we want our children to be something that God doesn't want them to be, it's something that we are holding on to. Um, image. Um, the, the best the thing I think of about is body image, being overly obsessed with our weight, or being overly obsessed with how we look, come across to people. Do people respect me? Am I where I'm supposed to be at this point in my life, at this age that I'm at? Do I dress the part? Am I sophisticated enough? Do, am I dignified enough? Am I young enough, competent enough? For me, I'm like, is my voice pastorly enough, <laughs> right? I wish it were like two tones deeper. <laughs> Or our career, career and ambition, right? Am I, right? I need this. I need to be, have this job. I need to be at this level, at this earning income. I need to have this status. Otherwise, I'm unhappy, right? There's drama at work. And I will walk on people or manipulate situations in order to get there, in order to have respect or the position or power that I need. These are all ways that we bow down to not God, right? But we take the shortcut to have glory and the route to power. And what does Jesus say? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 16, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Yes. You will fear your God and serve God only. Yes. As we journey during Lent and the wilderness, may we look only to God and clear out the things um, that are taking away from complete and utter trust and wholehearted faith yes. and listening to the voice of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example uh, and the love of Jesus um, who didn't, who experienced, has experienced every temptation that we experience in our daily lives and came out faithful. And we know we're not perfect and we don't have the strength on our own to be perfect, but in you, um, we're made whole. In you, we're made powerful, we're empowered. In you, we have life. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.